Welcome to Just Thinking with hosts Dara Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. Now, Daryl, we get new listeners all the time. Would you mind taking a minute and telling our new listeners about how the blog ties into the show? And in addition, share a little bit about the article that you recently published. Yeah, no problem at all. Omaha would be glad to do that, my brother. So uh, for the sake of our new listeners, the Just Thinking podcast is an extension of my blog, uh, which, as you said, Omaha is titled Just Thinking for Myself. You can get to the blog at just thinking. That's one word, justthinking.me. There's a button for you to subscribe uh, to the blogs where you'll automatically be notified when new uh, blog articles are loaded up. And uh, the mission statement of the blog, which I've been doing for a few years now, uh, is this. It is applying biblical truth to social, cultural political and theological issues in our world. So that is the mission statement for the blog. And given that this podcast is an extension of the blog, Mm -hmm. that same mission statement applies to the podcast as well. Now, as for my recent, most recent blog article, which as Virgil mentioned is entitled six ways the church in America is becoming increasingly impotent. That article is a thesis that I'm proposing as it relates to six specific issues, which in my opinion are contributing to the evangelical church in America being increasingly ineffectual in our society today. And those six things are these number one, hermeneutical immaturism. Number two, theological progressivism. Number three, soteriological universalism. Number four, ecclesiastical ecumenicism. Number Mm -hmm. five, pneumatological ventriloquism, and then number six, (laughs) evangelical pragmatism. Uh, Now, I'm not going to take the time in this episode to explain all those because that's what the blog article does. Uh, The blog article gives the history of how the article came about uh, and where those terms uh, fit within the thesis, within the argument that I'm making. But just as a little bit of background, the blog article was born from a tweet that I sent a few weeks ago in which I originally Mm -hmm. listed those six factors. And in response to that tweet, a few people asked me to expand on what those terms actually mean. So I spent the past four weeks writing that article. I mean, that that article is a beast. It is lengthy. uh, So just be uh, forewarned about that. It is a lengthy article, so you may want to chop it up and uh, read through it in pieces. But since I published that article about three days ago, I've had one pastor respond to me on social media that he plans to leverage the article in developing some discipleship training classes Mm -hmm. that he's planning to conduct at his church. So I'm very humbled by that. And again, you can check out the article at justthinking.me. But the, the, the primary impetus for the article was that the more critical issues within the church are being lost with respect to uh, a lot of what's going on in the SBC mm-hmm. and a, a lot of what's going on in the American church uh, in general. And I just wanted to bring back to our attention to some of the more central issues that are, uh, in my opinion, much more important than the ones that are getting most of the attention. I mean, we've got people out there now who are prof- professing Christians that have no idea on how to interpret scripture. Right, right. That's where hermeneutical immaturism 
comes from. What are we doing to help those people grow in understanding not just what the scriptures say, but what they mean by what they say? Mm-hmm. Okay, then you've got the threat of theological progressivism. Uh, the idea that scripture as written is no longer relevant. We need something new. We need to augment mm-hmm. scripture with things like critical race theory and other, other uh, worldly ideologies. Uh, soteriological universalism. We've got Christians out there who profess to, profess to be Christian anyway, who do not subscribe to the exclusivity of Christ as it relates to uh, salvation and how one uh, is, is brought into a right relationship with God. Uh, similar to that is ecclesiastical ecumenicism, mm-hmm. where you've got professing Christians who believe that, that again, Christianity has no exclusive rights on uh, who gets to heaven, who God is, uh, the truth, right? Uh, all truth is relative. You know, these, we, are, we have professing Christians who are essentially relatives, relativists with regard to their uh, theology. Uh, number five being pneumatological ventriloquism. That's where I argue uh, that, you know, they, again, there are prof- I emphasize that word professing because not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. It's just plain and simple. But pneumatological ventriloquism, um, a pneuma, uh, the Greek word for breath or spirit. So we're talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit here. Mm-hmm, We've mm-hmm. got people in ministries and people in pulpits and churches uh, t- teaching that the Holy Spirit speaks audibly to people, uh, that we have people uh, looking for counseling advice from people they love and trust and then attributing the advice that they get to, to the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's what I address in that issue. And then lastly, there's evangelical pragmatism, which is really what we're talking about. If you really boil mm-hmm. it down and what happened at the SBC convention a couple of weeks ago was just a display, uh, a, a, a regrettable display of evangelical pragmatism with re- respect to uh, just a, a, and I argue this in a blog article that it is, is a disbelief, it is a denial that the gospel retains the inherent power the intrinsic power to change hearts. The gospel no longer is in itself, in and of itself, powerful enough to do what the gospel says it does. So we need to get pragmatic in our approach uh, and, and, and and meet the felt needs of people because obviously meeting their spiritual needs aren't enough. So uh, that's just some background on the article. Go out to my blog site, check it out. And then uh, if you're so inclined, leave a comment there on what you thought. Yeah, I want I want to recommend that to our listeners and for, for a number of reasons. Oftentimes, if we're not careful, we'll chase around all of these symptoms. Uh, we'll chase around, you know, these illnesses, so to speak, around the around around church culture. And when at the end of the day, we really need to, uh, to go to the root cause of, of some of these symptoms that we're seeing. And I think a lot of it speaks. I think your article speaks to a, a very real diagnosis of what the, the root cause of the problems that we're seeing mm-hmm. actually are. And, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more as, as we go forward. But, but I thought your comments and particularly your article can serve as a lasting kind of one two punch for our listeners. And I know many of our listeners are interested in going deeper into books and articles that we mentioned on the show. So I, I hope to leverage your article as a lens for some of what I experienced during the SBC convention. 
Mm-hmm. Now, my goal is not to lambast everything that happened uh, at the convention. There was a great deal of good that happened during that week. However, when, when I found issues of disagreement or challenges, I thought about the tweet, man, that you posted on May, on May 26, long before the convention took place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as, as I mentioned earlier, there were three main issues that arose during the SBC convention. The first issue was of sexual abuse. Uh, the second issue, while which which wasn't front and center, uh, yet it seemed to be a question asked as a part of every panel discussion. It was the issue of complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Now, the third issue, which in light of Resolution 9 that seemed to get the most attention, was the issue of critical race theory and intersectionality as a tool for uh, examining or analyzing uh, the, the effects or impact of racial, racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Now, again, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, Daryl and I did a thorough biblical analysis of the issue of complementarianism in the episode entitled An Unnecessary Debate. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that particular issue. We've already covered that ground. What I will say is that it's interesting and at times sad to witness the conflation of the issues of complementarianism and sexual abuse. And what I mean is that it, it often at times was suggested or intimated during panel discussions on the issue of sexual abuse that some of what was referred to as, quote, a culture of sexual abuse, end quote, mm-hmm. was somehow connected to misogynistic men who desired power. Now, if, if that was where things started and stopped, I think that's something upon which we could all agree. Yeah, that, that a culture of, of sexual abuse, and, and I'd be careful about the word culture, because remember when we talked about what uh, those who, who are beholden to social justice, those who are beholden to critical race theory, they want to, they want to uh, paint people into groups. And so using language like a culture of sexual abuse begins to paint a picture of a, of, of, of a, a larger group than, 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 than what's actually right. uh, representative. So I want right. I, I, I mentioned that only briefly so, because I want our listeners to make note when we hear words like that. Yeah. Context is important. Context is critical here. It's critical. It's important. So upon upon that, we can all agree. Misogynistic men who desire power are involved in sexual abuse. Right. That that's something that we can all agree upon. However, the panelists would often go further by explaining uh, that one example of the power is uh, of that power uh, is the power expressed in, in uh, over women in their roles within the church. So the, misog- the the desired power of misogynistic men, they were claiming was expressed through complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you see, you see the problem that you, you see the problem with sexual abuse wasn't simply the issue of, of a sinful evil as expressed mm-hmm. in a sinful man. Rather, what began to be a theme was that the sin of sexual abuse was part of a, quote, culture mm-hmm. of misogyny that begins mm-hmm. with the suppression of women from positions of power and leadership within the church and ends in physical and sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. You see what they did? They, they began by looking at complementarianism and saying, you know what, that's kind of men usurping or th- that, that's men in positions of power over women. And that creates the culture where the kinds of sexual abuse things begin to happen. That's kind of what was, what was intimated, what was said at different times. Right. Yeah. Omaha, let me just interject here real quick. You've already, you've already said this, but I really, really just want to emphasize to get more context around 
this issue of complementarianism and where Virgil and I are coming from on this issue, please go back, listen to the episode that we released just last week. We entitled it an, unne- an unnecessary debate. Mm-hmm. I could get that out. An unnecessary debate. And I think as you listen to the episode in its entirety, regardless of whether you agree or not, you will come to understand why we titled it the way we did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, at times this connection was subtle and then at times it was very open and direct. Sadly, there was no way around the conversation on sexual abuse apart from a shift in focus to the issue of women and their roles within the church, particularly within the SBC. Now, for those listening who are not a part of Southern Baptist life, the issue of sexual abuse within the SBC was raised in a in, in part by a six part series written in the Houston Chronicle, which documents in great detail some of the stories of many who have suffered sexual abuse uh, and by sexual abuse. The article identified mostly through court record that, there, that in the past 20 years, there have been some seven hundred victims of sexual predatory misconduct that have taken place in SBC churches. As you read the stories and listen to those who have been sinned against in this way, their stories are heartbreaking. Man, I I listened uh, during a panel discussion to a story of a woman who was in her teens. She was being groomed and then sexually molested by a youth pastor. Uh, as she developed the courage to tell her senior pastor what was happening, uh, she went over to his house to have the conversation with him. She found that she was greeted by by someone who did not believe her and eventually asked her to, and I'm quoting, to show him what had been happening to her. Oh, now, it, 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 I, I couldn't believe this, Daryl, as I was hearing it, man, and everybody's heart sank jaw dropped that, that, sure. that heard this now, go ahead my, my heart is sinking just listening just you listen to us absolutely yeah absolutely in, in the same way that many of you upon hearing this are, are outraged by this kind of behavior being exhibited by someone with the title pastor all of us in the room who heard this story were heartbroken furthermore there was an outpouring of support for this woman as those who heard her story began to stand and applaud the woman's courage for sharing it. So there was, there was an absolute support for her, especially in that room that she a went through what she did and B had the courage to stand on a, on a podium uh, platform and and share her story. Mm -hmm. So the next question, what happened to the two men who were involved? Well, the senior pastor would be removed, but not for inappropriate response to this young woman who had suffered abuse. Other leaders at the church found that this particular pastor was involved in an, an, an affair, and, and as a result, the pastor was subsequently removed. And, and then I thought about the youth pastor. What happened to him? Well, no one really knew what he had done, so eventually he would find work at another church for which uh, it, it, this was a promotion for him, right? And so silence on these issues of predatory sexual abuse is not an option. We've got to begin talking about this. And again, within the room during this panel breakout, there was unanimous support for the woman and a desire to do whatever it took to keep situations like this from happening. Now, I I pause here because I want to say something that I found problematic, because I think everything that you've heard me share is something you would expect from believers in Christ Mm -hmm, to support mm -hmm. this situation, to to be behind, to be heartbroken about about the sin that took place. But here's the part that I found problematic. However, it, it, it was it was how important this issue it, regard, regarding how important this issue was at times it would get conflated 
with this idea that there was a culture within the SBC that somehow allows this behavior and that the system that needed to be broken down in order to get to the root of the problem was somehow associated with what's called hard complementarianism. Mm-hmm. That was the part that was really difficult mm-hmm. to swallow. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I attempted to find the specific quotes that led me to these conclusions that I'm positing here, the idea of the conflation between sexual abuse and complementarianism. However, I could not find the video for that particular breakout. So I, I do know that there were many cameras rolling and the information is out there. So here's, here's my suggestion. As, as you hear my comments, which are my own personal perceptions of this issue, I encourage you to be on the lookout for this kind of conflation. Mm hmm. Right. All of us, regardless of our point of view, egalitarian or complementarian, should be on the side of calling good, good and calling evil, Amen. evil. Right. Amen. Well said. Sexual predatory behavior is evil and no one should be in a position of defending it. Furthermore, for others who insi- for others to insinuate that biblical complementarianism somehow creates a culture of misogyny where sexual predators find safety. And that's that's an evil insinuation. And that absolutely should be condemned as well. Amen. Agree. Daryl, your thoughts there. Brother. Wow. man, that's a lot. Omaha. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm still recovering uh, emotionally here from, you know, you recounting the. Uh, the, the bravery again right. of that uh, the testimony of that young woman. Uh, wow. That, when you hear that, it definitely sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you raise a great point about conflation because there is a lot of that going on in this debate about egalitarianism and complementarianism, which shouldn't be at all surprising really given the growing politicization of the mm-hmm. denominations like SBC. Yeah. And I don't just mean that in the sense when I talk about politicization of the of the of denominations like the SBC, I don't just mean that in the sense of external political allegiances, as in uh, Democrat, Republican. You right, support right. the president, you don't support the president. I'm also speaking about internal allegiances. Matter of fact, I'm speaking more so about internal political allegiances as well. Mm-hmm. So, when the message of the gospel becomes a movement. Okay, when the gospel morphs from a message to a movement, such as what has occurred within the SBC, issues like sexual abuse are often politicized in ways that advance a self-promoting, self-aggrandizing agenda, as opposed to speaking to the church and to the world about how the gospel bids us deal with such issues biblically. Mm-hmm. There's always a danger when the message of the gospel morphs into a movement. The gospel is a message. It is not a movement. Okay. If there's evidence of sexual abuse in a church, scripture already offers a prescript prescriptive for how to deal with such people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of those prescriptives is found in first Corinthians chapter five, verses nine through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. This is where the Apostle Paul writes this. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Mm -hmm. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous 
or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Then Paul closes with this. Remove the wicked man from among you. He's there he's quoting Deuteronomy 13.5, where God commands his people to purge the evil one from among you. So the purpose of church discipline, I just want to say this as an aside, the purpose of church discipline is to remove the wicked from within it. But the reality is most churches today don't even practice church discipline. The reason they don't practice church discipline is because they either have forgotten or don't care that God demands that his church, which is comprised of individual believers, God demands that his church be holy and righteous. You deal with those who are guilty of sexual abuse, not by jumping on social media and hurling pithy, multisyllabic word bombs that are grounded in some socio-political agenda you're trying to promote. You deal with it biblically by removing them from the fellowship of the body of Christ. It's that simple. But we don't do that. But I think you make a great point, Omaha, in contextualizing uh, one of those word bombs that I, that I alluded to is folks calling it a culture of massage. Right. No, no, right. no, it is not a culture. Right. It, right. Is, it is not systemic. Right. It is not. You have instances, it's, it's going back to what I said earlier in the broadcast, the church is still full of sinners and it will always be full of sinners mm-hmm. until what we know from 2 Peter 3.13 comes to fruition. And it says for us, for believers, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It will never be perfect obedience as long as we're in these sinful bodies of ours. Until we're ultimately glorified, that will never be a reality in this life. So we should never be surprised that the church has within it uh, uh sexual abusers, uh, adulterers, liars. I could go on and on. But when there's evidence of this, these, this kinds of pattern of sin, you need to identify those people and get them out. That's what you do. I mean, it's really that simple, Omaha. Absolutely. I, I think what's happening as well is there's, there is pressure from, from the culture for the quote unquote SBC to do something. And so the manner in which it's being handled uh, is, is more, is more corporate in nature. If that, if, if I could say it that way, rather than uh, rather than what you've just prescribed from scripture at a very, very local level. Right. So let me just briefly say on how the SBC is handling the issue of sexual abuse. I briefly stated that there are a number of steps forward being made. Number one, there was a vote. Oh, to- do, you, do you mind if I interrupt you real quick? No, I no, no, go ahead, go ahead. This, yeah, yeah. I think you bring up a great point. There, there's, there's pressure out there for the SBC to do something. All right. When I hear that, and that is true, there's pressure coming at the SBC to do something. But what can the SBC do to change a person's heart? Nothing. 
No, you're you're spot on. I mean, when 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 you look at what what what's being the the cult a this got opened up not not by us, you know, not by not by SBCs, but by a a secular newspaper article that was written. Uh, and and so there's there's a a cultural response. Now, what are you going to do about it? And church polity would really dictate that local churches do something about exactly. it. Exactly. I, I, I think biblically speaking, that makes exactly right. sense. However, because of the fact that the, the quote unquote SBC as a body has been labeled in this way, again, we talked about it earlier. Uh, when, when, you, when the culture begins to approach things, it's not on a, on a one-to-one basis. It's on a, how can we group you? And so that you can pay a penalty for right. the, the, the entirety of the group is now to pay a price for what individuals have done rather than going to the individual level and dealing with and addressing these specifics. And so, again, I think there's a biblical response that we should have at each. You, you, you alluded to it, man. You, you talked about it. This is, all, this, is about, this is about church discipline and how it's properly practiced. I think that I think the church polity issues that we have as a part of the SBC maybe maybe create some additional problems, but again, I, there, there's there's a biblical response that should take place with regard to this particular issue. Yeah, and I I wholeheartedly agree with you and my point for the sake of our listeners, I want to make sure that they're clear on my point here. When I say that the there's nothing the SBC can do uh to change a person's heart my point there is that ultimately the goal is heart regeneration, heart change. You even want the people who are guilty of these kinds of sins to repent and have their hearts turned. That's ultimately what you want. Listen, an SBC bylaw can't do that. Okay. Revising or or adopting certain resolutions will never accomplish that in the end. Ultimately, here is the is the is the operative word. Ultimately, what you want is for sinners within the church to, as the, as Scripture teaches, to stop sinning. That's what you want. And a bylaw, a resolution, does not accomplish that. So even if those who are pressuring the SBC to quote unquote do something, let's say they get their wish. Let's say you get what you want from the standpoint of uh, polity or procedure or uh, governance from the SBC. Let's see, you get everything you want from them. Okay. Ultimately, what effect does that have on changing a person's heart to where they are broken about their sin? They confess, they repent, and that sin is mortified. They work to mortify that sin within them. That the, Whatever the SBC gives you accomplishes nothing None of that. You are still reliant on the supernatural power of the gospel and God in his mercy to change that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So you can have all the changes the SBC wants to make from from an entity standpoint, but ultimately you are reliant on God's mercy and his Holy Spirit to change that person's heart, to heal that victim of that abuse, that forgiveness and repentance uh, is is in play is is, is comes to fruition is a reality in those situations, and then the church can, as I said earlier, earlier can become more holy. It become can become uh, a a more righteous body because that's ultimately what God wants. So I just had to say that. I know you're about to delve into some stuff here that's no. very germane to what we're talking about here, but yeah. I just wanted to make that distinction. 
Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think that I think that needs to be said. But in, in, in light of that, these are these are kind of some of the steps that forward that the SBC has made. There was a vote to change the SBC bylaws uh, to make the credentials committee, which is, again, a subcommittee uh, within the SBC as a standing committee, a committee with the authority to address allegations of sexual misconduct made against SBC affiliated churches. Now, this is this is actually huge because the SBC is mm-hmm. is an entity only when they're get, when the messengers and all of the folks are gathered together at convention. Once the convention is over, the quote unquote SBC as a body, as an entity, it no longer really exists. You can't go someplace and find where the SBC is. Right. So this is a big deal that this standing committee, that this that this credentials committee is now a standing committee. And this committee will conduct inquiries about whether churches are acting in accordance with Southern Baptist belief on sexual abuse, racism, or other issues. And they'll make recommendations to the executive committee on whether an offending church should be deemed as, quote, not in friendly cooperation, end quote, with the convention. Mm-hmm. So so basically, upon receiving an allegation of sexual abuse, the Credentials Committee will investigate misconduct to determine if a particular church will remain in good standing as an SBC church. And so, number two, there was an there was an amendment to the SBC Constitution that explicitly states that addressing sexual abuse and racism is a part of what it means to be a Southern Baptist church. Now, I thought that's interesting. Now, I recognize its value in the culture. But I thought that was interesting, and I'm always I'm always yeah. concerned when there's a conflation of issues: one sexual yep. abuse and two racism. So be on the yep. lookout for that. But now, now this amendment will need to undergo another two thirds vote at the next annual convention in Orlando, Florida, in 2020. So expect another round of conversations about the issue of sexual abuse. And by this, I mean that the conversations will be around: Does the amendment go far enough? Right. And in fact, at the end of the convention, Russell Moore of the ERLC announced that at its national conference in October, uh, it all of that will be around the theme of sexual abuse in churches. I think that the theme is, quote, caring well and equipping churches to confront the sexual abuse crisis. Right. So mm-hmm. third third thing that they're doing, the SBC adopted a new resolution on the, quote, evil of sexual abuse, end quote. Now, this resolution includes a call for civil authorities to review sexual abuse laws, including statute of limitation, and uh, that allow predators to avoid prosecution because their victims did not come forward in the required time frame. Now, the, the new resolution implores, quote, all persons to act decisively on matters of abuse, to immediately report allegations of sexual abuse to civil authorities according to the law of their state, to intervene on behalf of the abused, and to do everything possible to ensure their safety and to exercise appropriate church discipline on abusers. And so that's that was the resolution that passed. The resolution, you can go look it up. It's called The Evil of Sexual Abuse. Number four, the SBC launched a Lifeway curriculum called, quote, Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused. Now, this is a new training curriculum produced by Lifeway Christian Resources, Mm -hmm. the ERLC, and the Sexual Abuse Advisory Group that includes a a handbook, an introductory video, and 12 lesson videos uh, uh, to, quote, help leaders understand and implement best practices for handling the variety of abuse scenarios at church, school, 
or ministry, end quote. And furthermore, every messenger at the convention received a free copy of the curriculum. So that's that's the, the that's kind of the roll up of what they decided to do about the sexual abuse thing. And I, th- I think these are good first steps forward uh, in so much as 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 a collective, they're going to try to do something as as an SBC convention. However, as you begin to hear, as you begin to hear and rather listen uh, uh, to victim advocacy groups, these steps did not go far enough. And and I've sp- I've spoken to those in in the biblical counseling community as well, who express one a joy that the issue w- was being addressed with such a, in such a swift and diligent manner. However, they also express concern that many of the solutions presented involved expertise outside of the biblical counseling framework. Now, without going into further detail to explain what I mean here, I'll simply say that whenever you bring analytical tools and solutions outside of what scripture prescribes, there are consequences and repercussions for doing yep. so. Darrell, yeah, any absolutely. thoughts on that? Yeah. yeah, let me just say, let me just say that when it comes to biblical counseling, and I say this as a biblical counselor myself, I am not an integrationist. I am not an integrationist. That is, I am not a proponent of integrating secular philosophies and ideas with biblical precepts and principles. Okay, I I firmly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to deal with every malady that we face as human beings in this sinful world. Every one. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient because every malady we face is the result of Eden, even Adam's fall into sin in the Garden of Eden. That can all be traced back to that event in Genesis chapter 3. Now that said, Omaha, I completely agree with you that when you incorporate or integrate secular analytical tools and devices into counseling situations, invariably you will encounter serious and often unexpected repercussions for having done so. Undoubtedly, there will be those who will listen to what I've just said here who will be licking their chops to disagree with me, So and so be it. But I stand firm. The word of God is sufficient to address every single need of mankind. The, the sufficiency of Scripture is exactly what Paul is proclaiming to Timothy when he says to him in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that every man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So I am a staunch advocate of the sufficiency of Scripture in biblical counseling and that the Word of God is all you need. That is the only quote-unquote tool you need to address any of these issues because every issue can be traced back as, as far as origins and Genesis to what scripture teaches in the book of Genesis. That is the starting point for every single issue. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, anything else you want to add there? Is that wrap up your thought there? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Good. Back to you, man. You got it. So, so as as we discuss complementarianism and the issue of sexual abuse, I want to move to racial reconciliation. However, before we do so, I want to revisit your blog article, six reasons the church in America is becoming increasingly impotent. And as I've read your article on the six reasons churches become increasingly impotent, I'd, I'd have to say that two of them apply to my personal experience during the convention. And, and notice I said my personal experience. So I, I, I do not want to act as if 
I have some command of all things SBC, right? This was my very first convention, and it is, it is with that level of humility that I offer any critique, okay? So I want I just want to say that up front. But I will say that two areas caught my attention were the section that you talked about on hermeneutical immaturism, which you explained in the blog that immaturism actually isn't a word. I think it's something that, that, that you made up, but I'm sure people are going to end up using it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the section on theological progressivism. And in that, you explain the following. I'm going to quote that section. It said this, mm-hmm. theological progressivism is fundamentally rooted in the postmodernist view that God's word is mutable and communicative. It is a mindset that reeks of the odor of epistemological dualism in that it proffers the notion that a person can refer to God as God, yet treat his word not as 66 books of authoritative, divinely inspired, God-breathed scripture, but as 66 containers of textual Plato filled with words that are so ductile and pliable as to make them mean or not mean anything we choose, depending, of course, on which way the social cultural winds happen to be blowing at any given moment. I'm still quoting from the article. The idea of theological progressivism is most evident today within evangelical churches and ministries that embrace homosexuality and LGBTQ inclusion, such as revoice and living out same-sex marriage, the so-called social gospel, and that reject the apostolic prohibition against female pastors. You cite 1 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14, and Revelation 21, 8, end quote. Now, unlike at any other time when we leverage quotes from other sources where the author isn't available to question, since that isn't the case here in this instance that you're here, I thought to give you an opportunity to kind of expound upon the point that you were making there in the article that you posted. Your thoughts? Yeah, so so theological pro- progressivism is fundamentally rooted in the belief that Scripture is insufficient. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what, what we're talking about mm-hmm. when we talk about theological progressivism. That is... Uh, theological progressivism believes that scripture must either evolve or be augmented with something outside of itself in order to be applied or uh, applicable to the contemporary issues that we face in society today. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about terms and catchphrases and how you need to be a look on the lookout for certain words. Well, that's that's a word that you need to be and a phrase that you need to be on the lookout because it's that phrase contemporary issues. Mm-hmm. Contemporary issues, because intrinsic with that term is the idea that scripture is uh, it, it doesn't apply to that. So we need something new, like critical right. race theory. Right. We need right. we need critical theory uh, right. as a tool to augment scripture. So, and again, so a prime example of this, uh, as I was just saying, a prime example of this theological progressivism is what happened at the SBC convention with the mm-hmm. uh, adoption of Resolution Nine. Mm-hmm. And it's embracement of critical race theory as, quote, mm-hmm. an analytical tool. Right. Now, I just quoted Second Timothy 3.16, in which Paul declares that Scripture is sufficient. Right. Peter says in Second Peter 1.3 that Christ has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Yes. But see, theological progressive, progressivism says no. Mm-hmm. No, Scripture is not enough. It says that scripture is outdated, irrelevant, right. and outmoded. So we need something new. We need something right. fresh. But as we know from Ecclesiastes, right, there is really nothing new under the sun. No, there isn't. 
And the reason not. we can the, the reason we can just real quick the reason we can yeah. say the reason scripture can say that there's nothing new under the sun is because the origin of everything that's under the sun is the same. The origin of everything, the origin of every problem, every issue under the sun is the same. Mm-hmm. And that origin is our sin nature. Absolutely. Our sin nature. Absolutely. What's well, on that? It's on that point, man. I went into I I, I went to to dig into SBC history. And one of the things that SBCers are known for are crafting resolutions. Now, if you're not familiar with SBC polity, in, in other words, that's church governance. We firmly believe in the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And the vast majority of our churches function in accordance with some variation of congregationalist model. For those unfamiliar with congregationalism, John S. Hammond in his book, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, explains it this way. He says, congregationalism is government by the congregation. Congregationalism allows for leaders, leadership rather, by pastors, elders, and or deacons, even strong leadership, and a measure of delegated authority. However, it does not allow for government by leaders. Now, as a result, we have a church polity that, refle- that, that reflects that, right? We have tremendous autonomy in SBC churches. Uh, I only explain that briefly to help you, uh, help you make sense of the resolutions that get presented at the SBC convention. Since there's no true ecclesiastical hierarchy dictating what Baptists are to believe and how they are to function, resolutions are offered by the messengers and, and sent to committees for review and presentation on the floor of the SBC. Now, for those not familiar with messengers, a messenger is simply a church representative that goes to the SBC convention. That's what they're called. They're called messengers. Right mm-hmm. now, now, they're going back to what you said about theological progressivism from time to time with different resolutions uh, that, that were presented at, uh, at the SBC. You can witness firsthand the theological progressivism in a particular resolution in which the SBC at some point in history affirmed. Now, earlier we discussed the issue of the role of women in church leadership. Right. As the as the battle seems to wage currently, this issue isn't new in SBC circles. In fact, in 1964, a lady by the name of Addie Davis, A-D-D-I-E Davis, became the first Southern Baptist woman to be ordained to the to, to, to be ordained to the ministry. She was ordained at Watts Street Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. And it was two southeastern seminary professors, RJ, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, R.C. Briggs and Luther Copeland, who participated in the ordination service. Now, in in 1961, it would be the liberal writings of seminary professors like Ralph Elliott who published the message of Genesis. Right? Some if if you studied uh, any any Southern Baptist history or Baptist church history, this this is a this was a pivotal point, especially for the SBC. This 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 writing would indicate how far Southern Baptists had gone from theological conservatism into theological progressivism. Eliot's book would use historical critical method to question the historicity of Genesis mm-hmm. 1 through uh, chapter 11 uh, and suggest that Moses was not the author of the Pentateuch, among other numerous false assertions. As you look more closely at resolutions within the SBC, you'll find an interesting resolution in 1974. I want to I take this slow because the way that these resolutions are written oftentimes can be confusing. So mm-hmm. allow, allow me, if you would, to kind of slow down and yep. walk you through this resolution that yep. happened in 1964. Here's the, here's the resolution. I'm reading, I'm reading it just as it was written. Whereas Southern Baptists have historically held a high view of the sanctity of human life, 
And whereas the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in St. Louis in 1971 adopted overwhelmingly a resolution on abortion. And whereas that resolution reflected a middle ground between the extreme of abortion on demand and the opposite extreme of all abortion as murder, and whereas the resolution dealt responsibly from a Christian perspective with the complexities of abortion problems in contemporary society, therefore be it resolved that we affirm the resolution on the subject adopted by the messengers in St. Louis uh, Southern Baptist Convention meeting in 71. So let me explain what's happening with this resolution. These these are kind of set up almost like a almost like a uh, a, a, a premise like premise one is this premise two is this mm-hmm. premise three premise four is this and so based upon these premises we have therefore concluded or that or be it resolved and, and mm-hmm. that's kind of how yeah. things are set up right so basically what this is saying is that one southern baptists have a high view of the sanctity of human life they've historically held that the second whereas is explaining that there was a there was a, uh, a resolution that was adopted overwhelmingly in 1971 in st louis And here's what's important. The third thing that they say is there's a middle ground between abortion on demand on one extreme and all abortion as murder on the other. So they're they're making the case that these two positions are extreme. Abortion on demand is extreme and all abortion as murder is extreme. So what they're looking for is a middle ground. And they believe that the resolution in 71 that that was written uh, uh, was responsibly uh, handled in such a way to hold a quote Christian perspective mm. with the complexities in contemporary society. So let me jump to the resolution in seventy one that they pointed to because this is something that's important to know and see. It says, "Whereas Christians in the American society today are faced with difficult decisions about abortion." So here's that's the first premise. Hey, there are people having a difficult time making a decision about this. In this, in the same way, let me let me pause for a second and just say this. In the same way that right now, with all of the states who are making decisions for their states about the issue of abortion, this thing is bubbling around the country, and we're having conversations about it. Though all of us know that what happened in Georgia and in Alabama are intended to land in in the Supreme Court to challenge Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what was happening in 71. In 71, these kinds of conversations were happening in kitchen tables and in Baptist circles. And so they were trying to come up with how do we navigate this thing and deal with it in a way from where we stand? How can we inform other Baptists in the way that they should believe about this issue as Roe v. Wade goes to, as, as, as what would become Roe v. Wade goes to the Supreme Court? That's what was happening. So I just wanted to give you a timeline. Yeah. Second thing, whereas some advocate that there that there be no abortion legislation, and what they mean by that is that there's nothing prohibiting abortion from taking place, thus making the decision purely a private matter between a woman and her doctor, and whereas others advocate no legal abortion or or would permit abortion only if the life of the mother is threatened. So let me stop and break that down. One, the first thing that they're saying is there are problems with abortion in, in the culture, and we want to address them. Two, they're saying there are some who say that there's nothing that should prohibit abortion from taking place. Three, there are others that say, yes, abortion should not happen, but we will o- leave a door open for the life of the mother. Here's what they've resolved to do. As a result, mm-hmm. they've resolved this. 
that this convention expressed the belief that society has a responsibility to affirm through the laws of the state a high view of the sanctity of human life, including fetal life, in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves. So in that statement, they've resolved something that sounds Christian and biblical, but listen Mm -hmm. to what they do next. Be it further resolved that we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions. So what they're saying is that they want Southern Baptists to work Mm -hmm. for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under these conditions, under rape, incest, clear evidence of of severe fetal deformity. That's huge. Wow, that's huge. And here's the here's the kicker and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional health and physical health of the mother. Yeah, that's the loophole right there. That's the loophole. So what what you have in the in the resolution that happened in 71 was a view toward, hey, what's going on in the culture? What's happening in the culture? And then how should we view these things in light of that? Well, we'll grab a Christian perspective. We'll kind of leave the door open. And we'll, we, what we landed with in 71 was a resolution that affirms that Southern Baptists should work for the promotion of opportunities for abortion and, and gave rationale that was just really a, really a page out of the social culture at the time. I mean, these, these, this is the language of the culture. This is not biblical language at all in any way, shape, or form. Now, the problem here is that while giving a, what I'll call a hat tip to the ideas of Christian perspective, there's no biblical basis by which this resolution is grounded. And furthermore, SBCers during this time bowed the knee to issues of sensitivity to, quote, the complexities of abortion problems in contemporary culture, end quote. Now, Daryl, it's interesting as I walk through a number of resolutions, whether it was on the issue of race or women in ministry or resolutions regarding abortion, Southern Baptists would often find themselves on the wrong side of history when they had given a hat tip to, quote, Christian perspectives or even to biblical sufficiency while leaving the door wide open for social cultural mm-hmm. cultural perspectives mm-hmm. uh, and its ideas and, and and those ideas at being used as a standard uh, for for measuring anything now if, if anyone's interested in learning more about the historical resolutions uh, in the SBC you can find them by going to the SBC website at sbc.net forward slash resolutions any thoughts you have bro man uh wow I know I went through. I went through. That, 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 no, it's 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 not the volume that you covered. It's just that, that last one on abortion. Yeah, I mean that's some next level hypocrisy right there. Absolutely, absolutely. That's next level. That's that's PhD level hypocrisy right there. It is. Uh, you know, I don't have much to add here other than to say again that resolutions don't regenerate. Come on, man. Resolutions don't regenerate. You just went through a litany of resolutions. Mm-hmm that purportedly provided a quote unquote Christian perspective. Right. Right. On some of these issues. They're nothing but loopholes. Right. They're nothing but loopholes for unchristian responses to these Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about the, uh, the language you just read from the resolution of 71 on abortion uh, that again, that, that loophole of all loopholes where you basically 
say, well, yeah, uh, uh, the uh, likelihood of damage to the emotional, right, mental right. And f- likelihood. How do you right. quantify that? <laughs> right, right. How do you quantify that? You know, so I look at that in light of scripture, particularly what the word of God says in Exodus chapter four, verses, verse 11, Exodus four, 11, which reads, the Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I mean, that's a rhetorical question of all rhetorical questions. Mm -hmm. And here, here's the, here's the, here's the, again, here is a purportedly Christian denomination mm-hmm. providing a loophole as if God is not sovereign over things like, quote, severe fetal deformity. As if God's not sovereign. If that was as if that were not God's providential will mm-hmm. for that child. No, we 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 need to allow loopholes for murdering babies that may be severely deformed right or uh an un a totally unquantifiable likelihood of damage to the emotional mental and physical health of the mother right i mean there's there's a likelihood omaha of me getting in a car accident when i drive into work every morning should i not go to work right should i just not bother you know so i don't have much to add here but i, I do want to say again and you just gave evidence of this resolutions don't regenerate i made this point earlier ultimately what you want is heart change that's what you want Mm -hmm. none of these resolutions that you went through accomplished that only the holy spirit can do that you know you can profess to be a christian you can profess to be a christian or christian denomination all you want but -hmm. if the fruit you produce says otherwise you're living a lie Right. I don't care if you're individual or denomination. I say that on the basis of First John chapter two, verses four through six. It reads this way: The one who says I have come to know Him, that is to know God, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now that can go for an individual or an entire denomination by virtue of these resolutions that you just read. The SBC was a lying, an organ, an entity of lies. So back to the text. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected by this. We know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is the one who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same manner as Christ did. Now, Christ didn't live a life of loopholes. You know, you you look at that resolution on abortion that, that that you just read, that verbiage that you just read there from that that SBC resolution 1971. I, I immediately thought, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who many look up to as an icon of biblical morality, applied the same logic as the SBC with res- mm-hmm. regard to abortion. That is mm-hmm. the complex the quote the complexities of abortion problems in contemporary t- contemporary culture unquote King. Uh, used that same logic as a rationale for his support of Planned Parenthood and abortion. Right, right. right. Give, give me some Hammond B3 right here because yeah, I'm on. sure that's a lot of pastors lot of did. Yeah, a lot of pastors, a lot, lot of black pastors did. They, a lot they of targeted pastors, them. Yep. Right. His, this, is, this is what Margaret Sanger did with her Negro project in 1939. Mm-hmm. She knew that black families had an almost blind allegiance to their pastor. Yep. Yep. Who, who in every church was black mm-hmm. and were pretty much 
say, hey, jump, and then they will say how high. Mm-hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that icon, I'm being a little facetious here, yeah, that mm-hmm. icon of virtue mm-hmm. was a supporter of Planned Parenthood and abortion, so much so that he was awarded and his wife accepted it on his behalf. He wow. King was awarded Planned Parenthood's highest honor, mm-hmm. which is the Margaret Sanger Award. Dr. King was awarded the Margaret Sanger Award from Planned Parenthood in 1966, two years prior to his being assassinated. Mm-hmm. Now, what you said earlier, Omaha, about the SBC giving a hat tip to certain issues under the guise of having a quote-unquote Christian perspective right. can be applied to individuals as well as denominations. Paul right. warns us about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He Come says, on, finally, brethren. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. Mm. Paul's calling out. So listen, be on your guard, be on your look, because not everybody who says they're a believer is a believer. Right. Not right. not everyone who says or professes to have faith in Christ actually has faith in Christ. Paul says in Second Thessalonians 3, 2, not all have faith. OK, mm-hmm. the gospel commands us not only to do good works, but to do works in keeping with repentance. Yeah. yeah. That's Matthew 3, 8. The Apostle John in John 3, 21 said, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Amen. Now, listen, not every profession, this is my overarching point here, not every profession of faith is a confession of faith. Okay, come on, man. All right, wait, wait a minute. Wait, wait, where's, where's that? Where's that Hammond? Where's that Hammond B3 right there? <laughs> not every profession of faith is a confession of faith. What I, mean by is that, what I mean by that is that not every good work is the byproduct of a repentant heart. There are many unbelievers, billions of unbelievers around this planet who do good work, quote unquote, good works all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're unbelievers. So not all that would seem to be good works are good works that are wrought in God. OK, mm-hmm. we need to keep this in mind when we see denominations and individuals who profess to be Christian acting, behaving and endorsing policies and practices that are blatantly ungodly. Yeah. This, this is again, you can't. This is what I said earlier. Denominationalism is not salvific. So, what if it's an SBC? The SBC is propagated and populated uh, by sinners. Yes. Just like every church. Like I mm-hmm. said earlier, you are a, if you're a believer in Christ, you are still a regenerate sinner. If you're an unbeliever in Christ, you're a holy, unregenerate sinner. Right. <laughs> So in either case, we are all sinners. So we should never be surprised. Again, I do not understand why everyone is shocked at the history of the origins of the SBC and some of these inane resolutions that you read that the SBC has adopted over the years. What do you expect from sinners? Right. That's exactly what you should get. Right. All right. So don't be surprised by any of this, but we need to keep uh, we, we, we need to keep our theology sharp. We need to have a biblical anthropology of things like this because it all is rooted into the fact that we, we, we all inherit a sin, sin nature from Adam and Eve. Go, go all the way back. Don't go back to the SBC in 1845. Right, right, right. Go back to Genesis three, some 4,000 years ago. Okay. Go back there. That's where you need to start. Right. 
Man, I, I I love what you said. There's so much. There's so much there that that I want to would, would see. I I enjoy my 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 Robin role, right? Because playing Batman, <laughs> I got to keep rolling rather than responding. And here's the other thing I want you to know: it's much easier to have a few more Hammond B three moments when you play Robin than it is yep. when you play Batman. True. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true, brother. That is so true, man. It's, it's easy to see. I'm just, I'm just setting up the pick and roll, so that's that's not a problem, you know. <laughs> you set up the pick and roll. I got to make the shot. Absolutely, absolutely. It's all good. But yeah, let me let me continue on, man, because there was so much stuff that you said in that that was that was so good, and and I know our, our listeners caught everything that every every direction that you were going. But let me continue Omaha, let, on. Let, 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 me, let me interject because you're, you're coming about there being so much, man, that we've covered and that we have yet to cover mm-hmm. uh, in this episode. What are your thoughts, man, about divvying this one up into two parts? Dude, I'm I'm open. I'm open to it. I'm definitely let, open to okay, it. Okay, so let's give let's give our brother uh, Dwayne Atkinson, the hardest working man in podcast land, a little bit of a heads up. Absolutely. They want to try to divvy this one up into two parts, and we'll let him work his magic on this because this is a lot of info to cover. It's a lot of but I think it's necessary. Yeah, necessary in order to provide that context, that historical context, that contemporary context with respect to the SBC and how the SBC has uh, morphed uh, theologically since its inception uh, back in 1845. So mm-hmm. I think it may be helpful to our listeners to give them somewhat of a breather around this and then let them, uh, let, let's divvy this one up into two episodes and uh, help them, uh, help them connect the dots without having to digest everything so in one episode. So Absolutely. I just want to get your thoughts on that. Sounds, sounds great. Let's, let's, let's do that. And I'll, I'll, I'll continue pressing through. I've, I've kind of set up a premise, right. Uh, to, 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 I really want to address some of the problematic portions of resolution nine, which addresses the issue of critical race theory and intersectionality. Right. So let me, let me begin by stating that there, there are many good things that are said in the resolution about critical race theory. Sadly, many of those true things that were stated were followed by half truths or falses that distort. Right. You kind of saw that in the, in the previous language around the, uh, the resolution in 1971 in 1971, they'd say things like, you know, hey, we hold a high view of, of, of humanity. You know, we, ha- we, we hold the sanctity of human life, human dignity. Uh, we, we hold the high view of, of, of the Christian perspective. And then they, then they would dump mess on you on the, on the back end, right? Um, yeah. this, is, this is kind of the same thing that, would, that happened with, with Resolution 9. And I'm not, the, the resolution itself is incredibly long. And so what I did was I took segments out of it to kind of for, for our review. And so let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, for example, the resolution states this, whereas the general, whereas general revelation accounts for truthful insights found in human ideas that did not explicitly emerge from scripture and reflect in some and reflect what some may term common grace. So here they're saying, hey, there's general revelation out there. These are insights that all of us apart from scripture know, right? So scripture is seen as special revelation, the general revelation of the culture uh, that the culture has. There's some human ideas that we can get under that term called common grace, right? Secondly, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality alone are insufficient to diagnose and redress the root causes of the social ills that they identify, which result from sin, yet these analytical tools can aid in evaluating a variety of human experiences. 
So let me summarize what they're saying. They're saying critical race theory and intersectionality alone, they're insufficient to diagnose the problems that, that happen in the culture. Because all of us know that the problem really results in sin. However, 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 <laughs> right, these analytical tools can help us, can aid in evaluating a variety of human experience. Now, wait a minute. I thought you just said that they were insufficient to diagnose because they have no ability to diagnose the issue of sin. Yet you're saying that they can mm-hmm. be helpful in aiding in evaluating a variety of human experiences. Mm-hmm. So at, at the beginning, the resolution, at the beginning of the revo- resolution, here's, here's what it states as well. It says, whereas concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality, right? So they know that in the culture, people have a problem with this. And whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Well, there's there's a problem with that whereas. So let me stop and explain that critical race theory is much more than a set of analytical tools. As we've discussed on previous episodes, CRT, critical race theory, comes from a sociopolitical Marxist worldview Mm -hmm. that sees everyone on the basis of their oppressed and oppressor groups. The goal of those who hold critical race theory or critical theory is to destroy systems of power seen as oppressor groups. Now, the problem with this on the basis of race is that you may not be oppressing anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. You, the, the mm-hmm. white person may not be oppressing anyone. However, on the basis of skin color, mm-hmm. they may be deemed as part of an oppressor group. Yep. And, and therefore, their input in opposition to their plight may simply be dismissed as white fragility. Yep. You know, oh, you're white and fragile. You can't take what we're saying about this right. issue because you're white and fragile. You're part of that 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 oppressor group that's enjoyed the benefit of being white all your life. And you have. No, so, so it's an effort to shut down debate. It's an effort to shut down conversation. And this term was used in both of the panels that I experienced on racial reconciliation uh, at the SBC convention. Now, there's the last the last one, the, the, the last couple here, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality have been appropriated by individuals with worldviews that are contrary to Christian faith, resulting in ideologies and methods that contradict scripture. So what are they saying? They're saying that they recognize that critical race theory and intersectionality have been used by godless people by godless people that these Duh. things come from, yeah that they that they've been used for by godless people and that they that it's resulted in ideas and methods that contradict scripture that's what they're saying in that and and they go on further to say whereas evangelical scholars who affirm the authority and sufficiency of scripture have employed selective insights from critical race theory and intersectionality to understand multifaceted social dynamics. So let me, let me break down what's happening here. In the first, whereas they're saying, Hey, we recognize critical race theory and intersectionality. Yeah. Bad people come up with this stuff. Bad people use it and bad things happen as a result. Yep. However, 
there's some guys who are quote unquote Christian from a quote unquote Christian perspective, right? Y'all remember that language from earlier? Yeah, Christian these, perspective. The, yeah, these evangelical scholars and these even the evangelical scholars, like they think the word of God is sufficient. Even those guys have used critical race theory and intersectionality to understand the social dynamics, the multifaceted social dynamics. And so, again, it's a hat tip, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. to the sufficiency of Scripture, all the while using ideas from the culture that are Mm -hmm. contrary to the word of God. Excellent point. Excellent point. This the, the problem with this resolution is multifaceted. However, the key critique that I have of this, Daryl, is that much like the previous resolution on abortion in 71 and 74 that give that, that hat tip to Christian perspectives mm-hmm. and biblical sufficiency, those who crafted these resolutions are not acting in accordance with what the Bible says. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture mm-hmm. is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every, every Mm -hmm. good work. Mm -hmm. That's scripture, man. One Mm -hmm. of the things, I'll say this lastly, Joe, and I'll turn it over to you. As as I thought about, man, I'd walk through that resolution and all of its crazy language that you have to kind of peel back, pause, and think about what's been said. When I when I sensed myself coming to peace is when you began to read the text of scripture mm-hmm. because it is the it is the more sure word of prophecy, the word of God that we have that we can hold on to rather than these ideas from men and their traditions. Now, again, I, I, I recognize, I think, what what SBCers are trying to do in the crafting of these resolutions. And I think historically you go back and see what was written and said. It is interesting to see the ebbs and flows of where uh, SBCers landed. But I, I know this. Uh, some of those resolutions in 71 and 74, uh, what, what happened there, were the, were the pivotal factors in seeing the conservative resurgence. And what, mm-hmm. did the, what did those who advanced the conservative resurgence say? They wanted to get back to the Bible. They wanted mm-hmm. to get back to mm-hmm. what Scripture says. And I think mm-hmm. that's, in, that's indeed the case now. That's what we need to get back to. What does Scripture actually say? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only thing I want to add is just to reiterate how you just what you just wrapped up on. You know, as I said earlier, it all boils down to an issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely. And whether or not one believes that the word of God is inherently capable of accomplishing what it says it can do. Mm-hmm. It's really it's really that simple. I don't have anything yeah. other to add other than that. Yeah. Well, there's much more that I can say about the panel discussions and other issues. However, I'll just stop there and simply say that I'm extremely proud of the work of men like uh, Pastor Tom Askell. He serves as the president of the Founders Ministries and uh, pastor of Grace Baptist Church uh, in in Cape Coral, Florida. I'm also thankful for men like Tom Buck, senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Lindale, Texas. I'll also mention Jared uh, Longshore, vice president of Founders. He's an associate pastor there at Grace Baptist Church. These guys and others are on the front lines of this conversation. Josh Bice. Josh Bice. Yeah, 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 no doubt. No doubt. Josh, Josh Bice, Bice. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. G3. Are, are, these guys are on the front line of that conversation. Uh, and as I mentioned up front, uh, this this was my first SBC convention. Boy, it was it was incredible. It was an incredible one. It was a wild one. A uh, lot that I learned, a lot that I gathered. It was really 
really great. But on a side note, Daryl, I had an opportunity, man, to run into a number of folks that listened to the podcast and wanted me to let you know how much they enjoyed what we do each and every week. Now, it, it was also great to run into guys like Chocolate Knots across politics. Now, I have no idea how a Presbyterian got into the SBC convention <laughs> and even got a ballot to vote as a messenger. I have no idea how that happened. Now, if, if there's any good thing, man, that can come out of the resolution that we discussed, Resolution 9, is that we get the opportunity to discuss this issue and learn more about critical race theory and intersectionality. And at the end of the day, we just rest in the sovereignty of God. God is in control uh, and the church moves forward as he intends it to. Any last thoughts that you have, brother? Yeah, I, just a final word for me is that in light of what we've been discussing in this episode, especially as it relates to the history of the SBC and what transpired at the SBC convention a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. which you attended, you know, I was reminded of these words in Psalm 146, verse 3. It says, do not trust in princes or in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. Mm. Do not trust in princes or in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. Now, that same precept applies to denominations. Do not trust in denominations. Okay, do not trust in ministries, reputations. Our trust should be in Christ alone Mm. in christ alone all right alone okay because we are going to sin against one another Mm -hmm. we're going to do that until christ comes and makes all things new yeah amen well with that said i thank you for giving me the opportunity man to kind of Kind of play Batman this time, man. I I, I much I, I much more prefer my role as Robin, though. I just want you to know that up <laughs> playing play Batman is work, and it on my it's a work, bro. <laughs> as I told you at the outset, man, it it, it costs to be the boss, man. It, it takes. To be the boss. It, it, <laughs> I tell you, man, it's a work driving that Batmobile, man. It is, man. It is. But, man, it was, a, it was a joy to do. I was glad to have this conversation with you and with our listeners. Uh, definitely tune in next time for another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. 